and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, it's Friday. It's Friday morning. I'm starting a little later than I normally would because things have been kind of hectic and weird around here. Um, and the weather is finally, it's not fallish yet, but it's kind of fallish adjacent, which makes me happy because I do not like the heat. And I got particularly annoyed the last few days because it was gray and occasionally intermittently rainy but still sort of hot and muggy which is just seems unfair to me um excuse me i know people don't like to hear me sip coffee and it was just very hot so uh what to talk about what to talk about um i kind of feel like i haven't had a clean hit on this biden um uh maga republicans thing i know we talked about it a little bit on the drive time thing uh last week but we just sort of touched on it some of the comments from people are that um that i guess got a little too hung up on the partisan elements of it and i think that just completely misses the point yeah obviously partisanship plays in all the time to partisan politics um but it seems to me like if you're going to it's sort of like the supporting of MAGA Republican candidates um, uh, or for want of a better term, because I think MAGA Republican is already becoming um, a term that is getting away from each other, away from everybody. Um, it's sort of like how the Democrats are supporting election deniers. Whatever I think of the election deniers, and I think people know what I think of the election deniers, but that doesn't matter. If you're saying that, that if you're, if you're like making the T symbol and saying time out, time out, this is, uh, this is different. This isn't about partisan politics. This isn't about, you know, the next election. This is about the future of the country. And these people are a profound existential threat to all we hold dear and to democracy itself. Um, you just really shouldn't be helping them get nominated. Um, you should be uh, doing everything you can to sort of pelt them from the public stage, um, you know, short of violence and all that kind of thing. But you should be doing everything you can to delegitimize those sorts of people because you're the one who is saying that you believe it's for the good of the country. I have, a, I, have a, I have the exact same attitude among Republicans. I think the Republican Party, if it had any balls, if it had any moral seriousness and any gravity whatsoever, it would just say, you know, look, I, I understand you might win the primary, but we don't give a rat's ass. Uh, you can't run in this party. You can't, you know, if David Duke wants to run as a Republican, the Republican Party should be able to say uh, no. And um, this is this is gets at the heart of my contempt for um, what the primary system has done to American politics. Uh, some questions just shouldn't be put up to a vote. And I'm not talking about public policy stuff, right? I'm not talking about government. The parties are private institutions. You know, I don't know what where everybody who listens to this podcast works, but my, my gut tells me that most of you 
work for businesses, whether they're for-profit or non-profit or whatever, organizations of one sort or another, where you do not put um, your hiring candidates, your policies up to a vote to the broader public or even a narrow slice of the public. Um, you know, I mean, like the way you, the way democracy enters the private sphere outside of government is when people vote with their wallets about what they want to buy. And that's a binary choice for consumers is they can either spend their money on something or not spend their money on something. They don't get to say, you know, here's how you should run your company. I mean, they can do that through boycotts and stuff, but that's really inefficient. My point is, is that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are under no obligation to do anything that the party itself doesn't think is in its interests or the interests of the country. And this was like, this is not, this now sounds weird to people when you explain that, you know, this is the way parties work for like a, a century and a half. And it's the way most parties and most democracies work where the party either, you know, through elections of all of the actual members of the party, I mean, like real members of the party, um, you know, sort of like a convention kind of thing, or through some smoke filled room or some executive committee or some council or some, you know, uh, one layer or another of decision making bodies, they decide who their candidates are going to be and who they're not going to be. They don't just say, you know, welcome every Tom, Dick and Harry come vote on who should run our organization. And so I personally think the Republican Party, you know, should just say QAnon people can't be Republicans just flatly. And I don't care if they could win primaries. They should change the rules so that that doesn't matter. Um, and so I'm not I don't have a double standard here. But my point is, is that if you're a Democrat and you're saying um, these people are a fundamental threat, that they are semi fascists or they're Nazis or they are. Um, holding a dagger at the heart of of democracy itself, saying, well, but, you know, we should help them get nominated because for the Republican Party, because that'll make them marginally easier to beat is just grotesque and cynical. And it's different than when they did it in 2012. It's different when, you know, it's different than other eras. If you actually want to be taken seriously, that you are, um, legitimately concerned about the 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 health and viability of democracy itself in america and that i'm sorry that was a long tangent but that's why my problem with the biden thing is you gotta keep the chocolate and the peanut butter separate you cannot say you're talking about the soul of the nation you're talking about how you're not demonizing anybody you're talking about how um you don't mean all Republicans. You just mean this handful of sliver of people who are who are opposed to democracy and yada, 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 and then lose the plot and lose message discipline and have some 25 year old jackass running the president's Twitter feed start putting stuff up that makes it sound perfectly plausibly that you just mean Republicans. You know, the other day, the the Biden Twitter account said, um, and I know I try to stay away from Twitter on this podcast as per the request of, of, of my loyal listeners. Um, but this is the president's account, right? So this reflects an actual messaging strategy and he has said stuff and the white house has said stuff along these lines as well. But you know, he had this 
he had this tweet the other day, this, which is an official presidential statement, um, <laughs> saying, you know, MAGA Republicans, I don't have it in front of me, but this is pretty dead on accurate, I'm pretty sure. MAGA Republicans don't understand what Democrats understand, that billionaires didn't build this country, the working class or the working people did, something like that. Now, I think that's a dumb talking point, but that's that's fine. It's perfectly fair game in normal partisan politics. The problem is, is that that is a normal partisan shot. And in fact, it's one they used against Mitt Romney, um, which I probably wrote 15 columns on that whole, you didn't build this thing. Um, and the problem is, is that that if your case is that you're using this term specifically and carefully and deliberately and with all due consideration um, for the, the higher principles of your office, you're using the phrase MAGA Republicans to talk about a specific threat that justifies the kind of rhetoric and the kind of arguments that you're making and the kind of claims that you're making and saying that these are different, right? That these are really a, a, a domestic enemy in effect. Um, and then you start getting all uh, loosey goosey and saying that, oh, and by the way, they believe the kind of stuff that Mitt Romney believed, or they're as guilty of the same sort of, mis you know, you know, mistakes or bad philosophy is as Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, you've just, you've done enormous damage to your own argument, right? And you've, and, and I think it's, it's cynical. I, I try really hard because I, I had to do this for years with Republicans where people, um, every time I ever did TV or debates or any of that kind of stuff with liberals, they always wanted to start from the argument that Republicans were deliberately evil in whatever controversy of the day, you know, when I, uh, you know, uh, when uh, Trent Lott said that America would have been better off if Strom Thurmond had won the presidency, whatever. Um, I remember Josh Marshall and Peter Beinart and all these guys that I would occasionally do CNN with or do other things, you know, they immediately assumed it was just a flat out racist dog whistle and outrageous and all that kind of stuff. And I, I get the argument, but you know, my fallback go-to argument was that it was just incredibly stupid what he was saying. Um, uh, it was, you know, it was Trent Lott trying to flatter a gazillion year old dude. Um, and said stuff that probably would have been fine at the, you know, the Lions Club roast of Strom Thurmond and Mobile or whatever, but probably was less appropriate when there were television cameras there. I don't think Trent Lott intended to say something about how, you know, you know, it was a shame that Dixiecrats didn't start running the country in 1948 or anything like that. And so I try to do, I try hard, you know, because I'm, 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 I've had to question a lot of my practices over the you know my career in the last seven years and so i try hard to give the same benefit of the doubt to democrats when they do stuff that it's it's stupid rather than um cynical or villainous and um i'm struggling with this because i think 
Uh, I think I personally, I think Biden's a little confused about all this stuff. He doesn't know how to talk about this stuff. Well, um, he's been all over the map about it. Um, but I certainly think that like Ron Klain and those guys know exactly what they're doing. Uh, it is a, and I think it's a, it's a deeply cynical and pretty pernicious strategy that is, um, that may in fact turn out to be smart and shrewd as I wrote last week in the G file. Um, or it may not, you know, I mean, like, uh, I personally think that the old, you know, whether you invoke Sun Tzu or James Carville, uh, adage that when your enemy is destroying himself, don't get in the way. Um, it's not obvious to me that letting Trump have the limelight without saying, without sort of intruding on it and saying, we hate this guy, um, is the best course of action. But it might be. It might be because they're looking at very granular numbers about how to activate certain parts of their coalition that don't normally turn out in midterm elections. And they may see, see something in the data that um, makes it worthwhile. So uh, I can't tell you whether it's smart or dumb in terms of political strategy um, or part, let's say partisan strategy. I do think it's it's certainly dumb if you actually take seriously the idea that Trump and the so-called MAGA Republicans represent a unique, a different threat to democracy than normal, you know, run-of-the-mill Republicans that you disagree with. If you believe your own rhetoric about this stuff, um, then what they're doing is stupid as a matter of statesmanship. And even if it's, you know, tactically shrewd as a matter of partisanship. Um, um, anyway, we can, I, I think we covered that. Uh, what else is going on? Um, so I, like on the, let's, let's start with another thing that begins with B, um, uh, these, uh, buses of these border, let's do some alliteration, the border buses, um, being brought by Abbott. Okay. There's an A in front of Abbott. So, um, It's kind of hit a crescendo in the last few days or weeks or whatever. This, um, what Abbott's doing, as, you, as everybody probably knows, certainly if you've watched five minutes of Fox, you know this. Um, Texas is sending busloads of uh, undocumented migrants. I don't know what what is the term that we're supposed to be allowed to say today. I have no problem with illegal immigrant, um, um, and I've always found the sort of tortured no person is illegal kind of uh, effort to turn it into like an offensive identity politics thing to be other garbage. Um, but in the case that there are people out there who f take offense at the phrase illegal immigrant, um, I don't mean it offensively. I just mean it as a legal status, as a descriptor of a certain group of people who came into this country without permission. Um, uh, so, you know, there you have it. Regardless, he's sending buses full of illegal immigrants uh, to Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., where I live, and New York. I don't know if he's sending to L.A. or any of those other places. Um, and I've, I've been torn about this. I haven't written or talked much about it because I think it's a stunt. I think it's 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 obviously pretty trolly and boob baity. Um 
And uh, I think Abbott is a real panderer um, on a lot of these kinds of issues. At the same time, I, you know, uh, I've, I've wanted to come up with a good argument for why it's, it's outrageous on the merits. And I can't, I can't really come up with one. Um, again, I haven't studied it, but my understanding is that all of these people are being sent with their, with their consent, um, to these places. And, uh, you know, there was, I was supposed to talk on CNN the other day, but they, we didn't get to it. You know, it was supposed to be this like blockbuster revelation that Texas has spent, I think it was $15 million sending these buses to these places as if like, this is an outrageous use of Texas taxpayer dollars. And I don't know, maybe, maybe voters are wildly against it. I, I haven't seen that. Um, but again, as just sort of a, as a, as a straightforward policy response, um, I kind of feel like uh, I have to like support it or at least not condemn it. If there was something inhumane about it, if they were separating families and putting kids on one bus and parents on another, if, and if those things are happening and I've missed it, I apologize and I will, I will revise my opinion. But from what I've seen, they're basically just asking people, you know, do you want to go to Chicago? You want a free bus ticket to Chicago? And they send them to Chicago. Um, and the thing is, is like, if we are in fact, as, as Joe Biden loves to say, and, um, Barack Obama loved to say, and Democrats love to say, we are in fact the United States of America, right? There's this whole emphasis on united, that we are one country. One country politics was supposed to be the big thing for the Clinton administration. Lots of liberals believe in it because they kind of don't like federalism. Uh, they like this idea of, you know, of a unitary nation state, which is funny given how much they in other contexts they hate nationalism i'll tell you if there's one idea that is essential to any serious concept of nationalism it is a unitary nation state um but regardless you know they like they, they love to make fun of people who talk about secession they love to make fun of um uh of you know of republicans who complain about illegal immigration um, they love to preen and virtue signal about how they have these, you know, these sanctuary cities, which is what Chicago is and what I believe DC is pretty sure New York is. Um, they want to talk about the inhumanity of, of, of actually policing the border and that we should be all be welcoming. And, you know, and then the mayor here in DC is asking for the national guard to deal with a couple buses full of, you know, illegal immigrants. You know, a couple buses, Texas is being inundated with, I don't know how many buses worth of illegal immigrants every single day. And somehow when we're all supposed to be, you know, neighborly and our brother's keeper and share burdens and um, rally around important moral causes, the people who have been preening about, um, you know, how they won't, how they won't, you know, uh, deal with, you know, the, uh, uh, with ice and how, um, they won't ask people for their papers and that everybody should be welcome. And that, you know, this is a sanctuary city, yada, yada. They're furious and they're calling, you know, like what, what's her face? Um, I can't remember her name. Um, the mayor of Chicago, is it Lightfoot? Anyway, uh, you know, she's calling Abbott a monster. 
for all of this, you know, like this soulless, cruel monster. And I don't get it. I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't get it as a serious argument. Um, um, yes. Would it be better if the Biden administration sent buses to distribute these people? Yes, that would actually be better. Um, or would it be better if the Biden administration spent more money on uh, border security and and detention centers, humane detention centers? Uh, yeah, that would be better too. But why? It's it's kind of a perversion, uh, or a per, it's kind of perverse to say that Texas and Arizona are um, heartless, cruel, and whiny about uh the border crisis or the or illegal immigration whether you don't whether you think it's a crisis or not um you know it, it's kind of perverse to demonize them as 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 evil and uncompassionate and then say but make but but then say don't you dare send any of these poor hungry people to my sanctuary city and you know, like I, I, I rail a lot about how I think we follow politics as a form of entertainment too much, um, and so I'm not advocating that we do that all the time. But sometimes it's a useful heuristic, right? I, I've written about this a bunch of times. Sometimes it's useful to sort of take the actual facts and think about how you could put them in a movie. Um, and how difficult it would be or how easy it would be to make, you know, the various combatants villains or heroes. And I think about this sometimes, you know, about Israel, you know, if you actually show, um, you know, the terrorists going into playgrounds or into, uh, pizza parlors and blowing up high school kids going onto buses and shooting up commuters or stabbing commuters and that kind of stuff, um, you could still very easily make a movie that is sympathetic to the plight of norm of, of everyday Palestinians. I just don't know that you could make a movie that cast the people in charge of the organizations that sent those murderers to go do that killing as in any way heroic or honorable. Um, and uh, similarly, like if you just did a straightforward political drama, where you had all of, you know, you had like Adams and this woman in Chicago and, and, and the mayor of DC and whoever else going in front of cameras and shedding crocodile tears about the plight at the border and about how, uh, unlike those heartless people in Texas and, and Arizona, we are a sanctuary city. All are welcome. No one is illegal, blah, 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 blah. And then five minutes after one of these speeches, you can't, you see, the next scene is them sitting in their office talking to their advisor saying, um, are you kidding me? There's no way we want these buses full of immigrants coming here. Turn them around, get Biden to stop it, get Abbott to stop it. This is outrageous, right? The hypocrisy of it is really kind of astounding when you think about it. And as a matter of pure public policy, right? I just think about it in terms of public policy. If Texas can't handle all, you know, we're, we're constantly being told that these people aren't um, criminals that, and I, I think most of them are not, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sympathetic about, a, about immigration stuff, but, uh, we're constantly told they're not criminals. They're refugees. 
Well, if they're refugees and Texas can't simply can't handle anymore because they're overwhelmed in their hospitals and everywhere else. Um, why is it a cruel or bad public policy to send them to rich liberal cities with, with ample social services? I mean, I just, I haven't heard the argument. So yeah, I, I don't like the trollishness and the performativeness of it, but intellectual honesty kind of compels me to say, I, I still think Abbott has the better of the argument on this. And, um, um, I, you know, I wish our politics were different that, you know, you didn't have, uh, this kind of constant, you know, sniping between different States, but, uh, but I just, you know, I mean, anyway, I'm curious to hear if someone has a good argument about why, um, I'm, I'm wrong about this or if I'm missing something, cause I just don't know what it is. And again, I'm not trying to make uh, by no means an apologist for Abbott. And I'm sure there are some problems at the margins with what Abbott is doing. But on the on broad brushstrokes, you know, if this had the imprimatur of the Biden administration, I think a lot of Democrats would support it, right? I mean, I, I thought I thought the whole complaint about Democrats is that they wanted, you know, as many illegal they wanted as many illegal immigrants in the country as they as as uh, they can get. I mean, that's certainly the Republican charge, and that's certainly the way a lot of Democrats sound. So why wouldn't Biden say? Hey, we're going to send a lot of buses to Texas and we're going to get these refugees to places where they can be properly taken care of and have access to social services. And yeah, and, and we'll figure out their citizenship later. I, you know, the fact that Abbott is doing what is in effect a liberal policy um, in order to highlight liberal hypocrisy um, doesn't change the underlying facts on the ground. All right. Anyway. Oh, um, yesterday, uh, I got the, the, the schadenfreude or the frisson of, of comeuppance to see Steve Bannon in handcuffs. And, um, I just want to be really clear. I, I, I think Bannon deserves to be in handcuffs. Um, I think that if you think that Bannon has been mistreated by the system, if you think that Bannon is a victim, uh, you're a dupe, um, or you've been duped. Um, you may be brilliant in all sorts of other aspects of your life. Um, I'm not saying you're a bad person or anything like that, but man, you've just been hoodwinked. Um, Bannon's a grifter and a con man. Um, and the only reason he wasn't put in handcuffs a couple years ago is because, uh, Trump nakedly pardoned him for cronyistic reasons. There was no like proper process for him applying for a pardon. There's no admission of guilt. Um, he just basically, or I guess it was clemency, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, he basically said this political crony of mine has carried water for me. And so, um, the fact that he ripped off, uh, his biggest fans, the tune of millions in a fraud case, um, doesn't matter. He gets a pardon or clemency, whatever it was. I should also say that I think he should be in handcuffs for what he was involved in for January 6th. But, you know, that's got to be proved. And this thing's got to be proved. The reason why I'm confident that he belongs in handcuffs is I, I'm pretty sure like two of his partners have already pled guilty to this fraud scheme. It's a pretty transparent fraud scheme. Um, and it is totally it is totally with predictable and within uh 
Bannon's normal normal approach to life to have ripped off the people who actually think he's not full of shit. Um, and so I think he deserves to go to jail. People who think he's a martyr um, to the regime or the deep state are just making fools of themselves. Um, and I just, I, I'm done condescending to people by saying, oh, you make a good point. Um, when they're like super fans of someone like Steve Bannon or Mike Lindell or Michael Flynn or any of these people, you're either in on the con or you're the mark. Um, if you really believe any of the nonsense that these people or Sidney Powell have to say about anything, having anything to do with politics, um, certainly anything having to do with their victimhood. And, um, but that said, I think, I think Andy McCarthy makes a very good point. Um, and again, intellectual honesty requires me to admit it. Um, because as much as I think Steve Bannon deserves to go to jail, um, and I think in a healthier time, he would have gone to jail for a lot of other things. Um, it's pretty obvious that this prosecution in, in New York is political. Um, you know, it was like in New York, it, it's, it's a good political move to go after Steve Bannon because, you know, Steve Bannon is a dashboard saint of the, the crazy MAGA right and all of that. And, um, I think Andy's right. Is like if 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 Steve Bannon were an unknown person, pardoned unjustly, uh, it's unlikely that the New York prosecutor would would pick this case up. Um, where I and I, I'm not saying I disagree with Andy about this. I don't, I can't remember where he comes down on this. I think he's right when he points out it's a political prosecution. I also think he's right when he says that the pardon of Trump, I mean, the pardon of, ban of Bannon was utterly and entirely indefensible, right? So, I mean, he's, he's being consistent about this. He's not being partisan at all about this, but I, I guess where I come down about the fact that it's a political, it's a politically motivated prosecution is I don't care. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, I, um, I think it's worth acknowledging I, for the sake of honesty and for hygiene. Um, and if Bannon weren't obviously guilty <laughs> um, uh, or if the pardon were remotely defensible, uh, I might be able to get worked up about it. But I guess to the extent I care at all, it's utterly and completely separated from any sympathy for Bannon himself. And I think this is the problem that a lot of people don't recognize um, about our, a lot of our politics, a lot of our debates about the presidency. And, um, and I, when I say I don't recognize it, they don't recognize it in themselves. Um, procedural wrongs um, are bad and we should, f we should do everything in, in our power um, within, you know, all good reason to avoid miscarriages of justice by getting the procedure wrong, right? So cops should read people their rights. Um, there should be proper chains of evidence. Um, uh, everyone has the right to the fair trial and to confront their accuser. All that stuff I, I, I believe in. But um, um, I think we all, I've always had a problem with how our system rewarded 
the guilty um, for the failures of the system to go by the book. And I, I understand that as a as a pragmatic matter, there's a strong argument. I don't always agree with it, but there's a strong argument, a serious argument that it's the least worst way to deal with such things. You know, so um, saying, oh, we should like with Miranda warnings, right? I, I believe the Miranda warning thing is a is a is a perfectly um, good judicial invention. Um, which just basically says, if you've watched a single cop show your entire life, you know, this, um, cops are supposed to say, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to counsel. Any words you say will be used against you in a court, maybe used against you in a court of law, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, but if you're like a serious, uh, if you just come off a, you know, a three state killing spree or you've raped a bunch of people. The idea that if the cops didn't read you your rights, you should go, which I, I know it happens less than Hollywood portrays it. There are ways to you know remedy some of these things. But as a, just as, as a principle to illustrate my point, uh, you know, the idea that somehow because the police screwed up procedure, the criminal should be free to go. I've always had problems with and that's not to say i think cops should be able to screw up the procedure but like it, it sometimes seems so alien to people particularly of the defense lawyer bent to say well why don't we dock the cops pay right why don't we uh suspend him for two weeks why should the why should a rapist or a murderer benefit from a rookie cop's screw up um, and you know, there are counter arguments to it about how, like the way the systems and the bureaucracy works is that you would not actually have, like, this is the only way to put a real pain point and price on doing the procedure. Right. I get all that. I don't want to have that argument. It's been a long time since I read up on all that argument. But my point is, is that you can get angry about the corruption of the process. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the individuals who are complaining about the process, even if they're complaining correctly, deserve any serious moral sympathy. Um, so, yeah, I am sure Biden, uh, Bannon is pissed off, right? Uh, because he was never he was never actually indicted. There's no double jeopardy here, right? He can't actually um, uh, claim that. Uh, he was already tried for this crime, so he can't be tried again. Um, presidential pardons do not apply to state criminal law. Um, but he definitely feels, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just projecting here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. He definitely feels like he got screwed because like, he feels like he got away with the crime of the bilking of money, but also he got away with the crime of getting the, the pardon. And he probably thought he was free and clear. And he thinks that this is unfair. Now, in, in this case, let's just stipulate that it's unfair. Like, like Andy's right, it's a political prosecution. But for Bannon's political status, this wouldn't be happening. Let's just assume that's right. That's a serious criticism of our system. It is in no way an exoneration or a mitigation of Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon did what he did. 
He showed no remorse for it. He worked the system to get a grotesque pardon for it. Um, and then he thought he could just go on about his grifting ways. Like the fact that, that this is in some, from some angle, either hypothetically or really, or in real terms, uh, um, a dubious prosecution in no way should change your opinion about Steve Bannon, the man, Steve Bannon is a, the man is a carbuncle on American politics. Um, and there's no defending him on the merits. Um, and so like, yeah, the lawyerly pounding on the table, but this process is, is wrong or unfair, blah, 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 um, is kind of beside the point. And this, this sort of gets like my, my thing about, which I, I know I've written, talked a zillion times about, about why I hate the way we talk about impeachment stuff. Um, and why we, I hate the way we talk about is the president above the law or below the law and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like if the only standard for judgment of presidents or public figures of any kind is whether or not they broke the law, then you're really saying we basically have no standards at all, um, except the absolute minimal standards for public conduct. And, um, the, you know, take this Mar-a-Lago stuff. Uh, I think I got a pretty good handle on it. I've listened to the advisory opinion stuff and we had a good dispatch podcast with Sarah running through it all again. I've done a lot of reading on it and all this. And I get the different kind of arguments and all that about, about the process. And I personally think the DOJ is correct to appeal this decision by Canon, but that's fine. Whatever. My only point is, is that whatever, however the legal dust eventually settles on all of this and whether or not Trump broke this law or that law or committed perjury or not, or with the obstruction of justice or not and yada, yada, yada. Again, if you made a movie, if you just sort of described this in the abstract without invoking, you know, the names that ping your sense of hatred or loyalty, it's just obvious that Trump behaved horribly and demonstrated once again, that he was never fit for office and I don't really care in some grander sense about whether or not it was um, a class A felony or against the law about this or, or, or legal about that. That sort of doesn't matter to me. I mean, like, like how many people in your, in your work life do you say, well, he didn't break the law, so we shouldn't fire him, right? Or... Or he didn't break the law, so let's give him a promotion. Um, or, you know, you know, he hasn't stolen anything from the the storeroom, so uh, the fact that he doesn't do his job very well doesn't matter, right? Or the fact that he's crude and he distracts people all the time from their work and he tells inappropriate jokes, but you know, none of it is against the law. Blah blah. blah. That's not how we judge anything else anybody else in our lives um you know you don't you don't you don't come up with the list of people that you want to invite to your party or your wedding you know or your kid's birthday or whatever and say okay let's make a list let's make a list of the lawbreakers and the non-lawbreakers and it's only when we get into these stupid political controversies where in part because the lawyers invade tv and make it sound all very serious and stuff um, uh, 
does the argument switch from right and wrong to um, can or can't? And um, I just find that whole thing so demoralizing and indefensible in any grand scheme of things. And I, so like with, with the Trump stuff, like, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, I mean, it depends which explanation he's offered because he's offered so many, but for most of the explanations that he's offered, um, even the ones that contradict each other, I personally think if they were true, they would be worse than the, than breaking the laws that he's accused of breaking. Um, if he thought that like it was fine to make all of these classified documents and government documents that did not belong to him, um, quote unquote declassified, uh, which means, you know, that they are open to FOIA requests and, and, and all sorts of things. Right. If he thought that like that doing that for his own convenience or that so that he could have them lying around, um, at Mar-a-Lago, um, uh, so he could show off to people, uh, even if that was perfectly legal, that's just, that just shows you how, what an irresponsible buffoon he is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel that same way about like the impeachment, uh, both impeachments, you know, I feel that way about, I felt that way about Bill Clinton. And I wrote at length about all of this, 25 years ago about Bill Clinton. It's like, I didn't really care about what laws Bill Clinton broke. I mean, that made it worse. Um, but I thought Bill Clinton's behavior was what was impeachable. And I was, I was very reluctant about impeaching Clinton at the time. I was for censure until things moved along. But once it got to the point where it was an impeachment thing, I certainly think the impeachment was, was utterly defensible. Like, I'm sure I've talked about this before. Um, there was this great episode. I wrote about it um, in this piece called, I think, Greta Van Awful. Uh, there was this great episode of, I, I think it was Larry King, where Greta Van Susteren and and Robert Bork were on TV. And people forget this now because Greta Van Susteren is such a um, pliable uh, um, uh uh, such a pliable partisan, like once it became in her interest to be sort of Trumpy and she became Trumpy. Um, but when I was coming up in the nineties, she was a crazy left winger and, and liberal and, uh, and, um, and anyway, she was a huge Clinton defender. And I remember, so judge Bork, uh, was on and he was saying, basically making my point, right. Um, basically saying, look, it doesn't, you know, I, it was like, it doesn't really matter what the law is on this. This behavior in and of itself is so inappropriate that it's impeachable. And he was saying, look, look, if there was, and I'm paraphrasing because it's been a long time since I looked at this, but he said, you know, look, if, if, uh, if a judge was having an open, affair with one of his clerks in the office and doing the things that Clinton was doing with Lewinsky in the office, that would be impeachable. And I remember Greta Francesian just completely not getting it and saying, wait a sec, but they're both consenting adults. And judge work was like, yeah, this is, but it's, it's, it's consensual. And he's like, uh, -huh. yes. <laughs> and, 
like this idea that you can impose penalties on our highest the our highest officials for their conduct even if it's legal conduct is bizarrely alien to a lot of people and i get that one way you're supposed to do that is with elections and that's the way we do it 99% of the time but sometimes there's other conduct that is so reprehensible that it requires um action before the next election, whether it's censure, whether it's impeachment, whether it's just simple, uh, you know, informal condemnation. And the way in which partisans on both sides fall back onto this legalistic, amoral, instrumentalist horseshit. I'm sorry I'm cursing a lot today. It just, it's that kind of day. Um, uh, you guys are, Ryan's free to bleep me as he sees fit. Just don't make it too loud because I, I got some complaints the last time I cursed here the the bleeps hurt people's ears um anyway you get the point um where else to go oh so we talked about this i my insistence we talked about this a little bit on the on the dispatch podcast and um i do think it's just it's maybe i, I think i might write about this today i don't know um the the White House claiming that they were on the side of opening schools against Republican intransigence. Um, I mean, it takes it, it, it takes something really egregious to get me to rush to Donald Trump's defense. I think I've demonstrated that so far this this episode of The Remnant. But that is such unbelievable garbage. Um, you know, Donald Trump whether you want to say it's to his credit or not, whether you want to say it was based grounded on policy or not, he was on the right side of this debate. He was, he was like insisting that the schools be opened. And of course the presidents can't tell local schools how, whether to open or not, but he was like, let's open the schools and Democrats, uh, largely though, not entirely, uh, because they were enthralled to the teachers unions who behaved utterly um, dishonorably throughout most of the pandemic, uh, were against opening schools, even though they, they allocated gazillions of dollars to say that the, the, it was to open schools. And so we kept schools closed longer than pretty much any other, um, uh, comparable country. We've had massive learning loss and there's just something about the liberal mindset that um, um, I don't want to speak too broadly, but I, I've written a lot about this. So I have very strong views about this. There's something about inherent in the sort of the progressive mind or a, a certain form of the progressive mind that can't really reconcile the idea that, th that their side might've been the bad side, you know, to be, to use sort of simplistic terms. Um, you know, this was one of the points of, uh, I made in, in, in liberal fascism was that when you read the standard liberal historians about with a few exceptions, you know, like Alan Brinkley, I think was a great historian and, uh, Eric Goldman was a great historian. I mean, they're, they're, they're good liberal historians out there. I'm not trying to be too broad a brush, but when you, when you read the sort of standard liberal narrative about, 
um, American history, particularly 20th century American history, you get this, um, you get this weird dynamic where either, uh, the evil in America was due to conservatism, McCarthyism, you know, Reaganism, uh, right-wing racism, isolationism, whatever. Um, or it was a product of the evils of America itself, right? That this is just, this proves that America at its core is racist or America at its core is in, in egalitarian, um, or sexist or what, or homophobic or whatever. And you never find in any of these indictments, any sort of, again, I'm not, I, I don't want to be categorical about this in, in the indictments I am thinking about, you never hear people say, um, you know, conservatives really had nothing to do with this. Um, and really this wasn't an American problem. Uh, this was really that just, the left screwed up or that progressives screwed up or that progressives were wrong and conservatives were right. Um, there is this sort of no true Scotsman thing that goes on in the history of American progressivism that uh, drives me crazy, um, which is one of the reasons why in my writing, I harp so much on the progressive era. Yeah, there were people that you could, and like political categories are complicated going back that far. Um, and there are people that you could call conservatives um but they weren't conservatives in the mold of the um you know the sort of uh modern conservative movement the post-world war ii buckley hayek the the conservative movement that 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 george nash describes or even the conservative movement that that continetti describes for the most part you know and i had that disagreement with matt i love matt's book on the right but I had problems with him starting in 1920 because I think that um, the pre-World War II right is so uh, inchoate and non-ideological in terms that um, translate uh, to the, the modern era that you kind of distort more than you reveal by putting the rise of, of, of the conservative movement in the 1920s and to, in fairness to Connetti, and we've had this conversation a million times. Again, I love the book. He's a great guy, yada, yada, yada. Um, he calls his book the right. And, and he makes the point that th there are competing factions on the right for how to define conservatism. So there's, there's some capaciousness in, in, in Matt's scheme schema as well. Um, but, if you read the reason I, I I should back up, I'm 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 in danger of self-indulging in, in very very niche conservative eggheadery here. Um, but uh, the reason why I I, ma I make this distinction is that um, William F. Buckley turned his back on a lot of the kind of stuff that people would call conservative in the progressive era. And I'm not going to get into all that. Maybe I'll do a whole podcast on it or something like that. I didn't mean to tease you, Ryan, you can gut it if you think it's just really annoying. Let me get back to the point I was trying to make. Um, and if I can only remember what it was. Um, oh yeah, so that's right. So like there's this sort of no true Scotsman kind of thing that goes on with, um, with a lot of progressives where 
progressivism is just always right, right? That that like and 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 I mean this in almost like a sort of I don't know if I mean it in an epistemological sense or a tautological sense, but in the sense that being progressive is synonymous with being right. It's sort of like saying the correct person is the one who is correct. Um, the the left has believed for a very long time that as a monopoly on political virtue, that its motivations are noble, so that whenever something goes wrong, it sort of goes back to this thing where uh, this benefit of the doubt thing that I was talking about earlier. If something goes wrong, it's either because progressives weren't in charge, progressives got hijacked, um, or progressives stopped being progressive. But the idea that you could be um, both progressive and the villain is just is it, it's the kind of thing that makes you know Harvey Mudd's um, android friends heads explode and um, and I've and I've written a ton about this and um, and you can go back I, I mean like I, maybe I will write about this today so I won't waste it all here. But like there have been plenty of times in American history where the left were the bad guys, you know, and I'm not saying that that means that like all their ideas were illegitimate or yada, yada. I'm just saying that if you're going to score the points about things that we can all agree were bad, it was the liberals who did it. I mean, it was FDR who put people in concentration, put Japanese people in concentration camps I mean, they weren't death camps or anything, but that, that was bad. Right. Um, FDR, when he was the, the assistant secretary of the Navy, ran this really terrible um, uh, sting operation that ruined the lives of all these gay guys in the Navy. Um, FDR used a lot of tactics that were later denounced by you know the left when they were used against communists. Um, but you should read like Leo Rabuffo on the on the Brown Scare. I mean, it's interesting stuff, and I'm not exactly defending the quote unquote Browns. Um, in American politics, but, um, you know, Upton Sinclair knew that Sacco and Vanzetti were guilty and decided to write that they were innocent anyway to stay popular with his fans. Um, the Rosenbergs were guilty. You know, I mean, one of the reasons why the Hiss McCar the, the, the Hiss Chamber stuff became so, uh, you know, world historic in the 1950s was that establishment sort of liberals just could not accept the idea that one of their own, this, you know, this sort of patrician elite liberal of good standing, um, uh, was the bad guy. And he was a bad guy. His was a bad guy. Um, and, you know, and I don't care how many, classes at Bryn Mawr you took saying otherwise. He was the bad guy. The Rosenbergs were bad guys. You could argue maybe they didn't deserve the death penalty. I mean, I, I, I people make good faith arguments about the death penalty all of the time, and, and it's sort of a different thing. But they were the bad guys. The people who sided with the communists in the 1930s and 40s, you know, some of them may have been dupes. That's fine. I think a lot of them were dupes. You know, Lenin never actually said, or at least there's no record that Lenin actually said, uh, that Western intellectuals were useful idiots, but it, you know, it stuck around because it, it, it captured something real. Um, you know, the, the Tuskegee experiment, uh, was, it was complicated. 
Um, and it does say something, obviously, it does indict something fundamental about America. But conservatives were nowhere near that thing. Um, and certainly the conservatives of my ilk, which look, I mean, this podcast is called the remnant. So take that for what you will. Um, but the conservatives of my ilk, limited government, free markets, all that kind of stuff have almost no overlap with the quote unquote conservatives of the progressive movement. Um, and even the, the liberals of the progressive movement vast numbers of them were racists and eugenicists um sympathetic to fascism um certainly sympathetic to communism uh you know the one holdout in buck v bell uh on the supreme court written by oliver wendell holmes the titan of liberal jurisprudence and um a committed eugenicist and pretty much jerk um was i can't remember his name right now it's escaped me i think it was butler but um was a catholic conservative buck v bell which said a uh, which you know which is the famous case that allowed for forced sterilization of the unfit uh quote unquote unfit uh was um eight to one and you know conservatives had nothing to do with that um you know in lots of places you know, like I understand that people want to retcon and I'm not trying to do like the sort of Dinesh thing. That the real racists are all Democrats and the Republicans are all the good guys and all that kind of thing. But like FDR had racists and Klanmen, Klansmen in his coalition for years and he made accommodations to them. He made apologies for them. Um, uh, one of Bill Clinton's uh mentors william fulbright of the fulbright scholarship fame um was a jackass isolationist on foreign policy and he was a um um a segregationist for a good long time and again i'm not trying to say the right were always right and the, the right are always the good guys or any of that kind of stuff i've given up I, I never really believed those kinds of arguments but like i've given up even making any nod to those kinds of arguments um but there is this thing that I think is really unhealthy for our politics um, and our country, which says my side is never wrong. And the problem with that isn't just that that's historically inaccurate. It's that if you spend all of your time searching the horizon where, you're where the, the camps of your enemy reside, and for the the threats to democracy, the threats to decency, the threats to um, Western civilization, whatever you want to call it, um, if you're only looking for those things to come out of the enemy camp, you're going to be completely blind to any similar threats coming out from behind you. And this is one of the reasons why I, I believe more and more in like I, I just did this podcast with Sam Harris. Um, and, uh, it should be out, I think next week. Um, it was interesting, you know, you want to do a lot of Trump bashing, which I'm, you know, his podcast, he asked me questions. I answered them and I bashed Trump a lot and I'm fine doing that. But, um, um, but he's sort of a guy of the left and he takes seriously policing people on the left and I'm a guy of the right. 
and I take seriously policing jackassery on the right. And um, I kind of feel like that is the the most indispensable thing. People ask me, you know, why do you spend so much time writing about the problems of the right and not about the left? Well, you know, part of it is because I've written a lot about the left. And but part of it is, is that I care more about the right. And I honestly and truly and sincerely and passionately believe this country is screwed if conservatism ceases to be about conserving what is best in America, about conserving the Constitution, about conserving and preserving liberty, um, about defining, about talking about this country as if it's a good country. Um, you know, this is part of part of the difference between my my spiel about nationalism versus patriotism is like nationalism gives you lots of room to talk about how bad the country is or how mistreated we are um and patriotism is just much more open-hearted about this kind of stuff. this is a good and decent country and if conservatives aren't going to be defending it and its traditions and its institutions then no one is because the left gets to be the left and the populist right, which wants to be revolutionary and transformative and radical and all that kind of stuff and all that Sorob nonsense, um, it's like a contest between right-wing populists and left-wing populists um, is a contest over who can denigrate more of America. Um, and... I think that is just so unbelievably dangerous and unhealthy for conservatism because conservatism, it drew straws and it drew the straw saying, you're the guys who have to defend some unpopular stuff like the constitution, like free markets, like, um, the rule of law, um, free trade, yada, yada, yada. And uh, like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not saying that if you're not for free trade, you're not a conservative anymore. I'll just say you're wrong. Um, and, and I'm not saying that there are, isn't room for this, you know, tweak or that tweak to policy, but at the more fundamental level, it's like this country is supposed to have a party of change and a party of conservation. And if the conserv if what we call conservatism is no longer about conservation, um, but about radicalism, about tearing down, about, you know, what Steve, Steve Bannon is totally honest when he says he's a Leninist. He says he's a radical who wants to tear down our institutions. Those guys at Compact, which I blissfully have not read since the first issue and haven't felt the need to, but those guys at Compact, um, you know, they said in their mission statement, you know, that they're radicals. And, that, you know, and radical means to tear things down to the roots and, and start over. I don't want to tear America down to the roots and start over. I like this country. And I like, I like the Democrats, a lot of them. I disagree with a lot of them, but I like Americans. And like, I, this is one of these things, like if you've, if you've traveled at, abroad and you run into, or if you've lived abroad and you run into Americans um, it feels good, <laughs> even if you disagree with them about friggin' politics, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's much more like, you know, like, oh, you're a, you're a Red Sox fan, you know, well, you're wrong about that, but yeah, let's get coffee or whatever. And, um, um, but when, you know, I, this whole argument about how politics is mapping like a religion, 
um, I think that's particularly dangerous when you have a religion that is not tolerant of other religions. And I think the sort of that, that religious mindset is taking over in lots of places. I think it has been prominent on the left for a very long time. I mean, like a very long time, this mindset that we have a monopoly on political, on moral virtue and politics, that we have, uh, that we've been right on every important question and conservatives have always been playing catch up. That I think is in the groundwater in universities and in high schools and in grade schools and, 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 and mainstream media and all that. I think they believe that for a long time. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why conservatives have this sort of permanent chip on their shoulder these days where they always are talking about how they're treated unfairly, uh, you know, throughout all of time. And the truth is, is that conservatives haven't always been treated unfairly. Sometimes they deserve the lumps they got. And the truth is sometimes progressives have been the bad guys have been wrong. And it was the conservatives who stopped them from, from proceeding with their wrongness even further. Um, you know, a car needs a gas pedal and a brake pedal. And, um, I'm fine being in the party or uh, forget party. I'm fine being in the, 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 the brake pedal team, team brake pedal. Um, all right. I think I've gone long enough. Uh, oh, hour and six minutes. Uh, oh, one thing. And I, I just bring this up because I think it's like super friggin' cool. Um, and I kept, we kept meaning to talk more about Ukraine on the dispatch podcast and then it didn't come up. Uh, you might've missed it, but the Ukrainians have commissioned all these artisans, um, or f construction firms in Ukraine to build fake high Mars systems. Um, high Mars are these incredibly impressive, uh, like rocket artillery things that have scared the Dickens out of the Russians where they can, um, uh, cause they can go hundreds of miles and they can take out command and control and supply line things and take out major pieces of, of material. And, um, um, and so the, the, the HIMARS are actually causing the Russians to redeploy strategically to avoid their range and avoid being struck by them and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the Ukrainians have, uh, have been building fake, uh, HIMARS, uh, installations <laughs> and deploying them around. It's like, I don't know if it's balsa wood or oak or whatever, but it's wood, you know, it's like wood and paint. And, um, and the Russians are so scared of these things. They either, move in response to a decoy, a dummy HIMARS system, or they drop incredibly expensive, <laughs> like cruise missiles on them, um, to blow up stuff to turn it into sawdust. And it's got a very sort of D-Day kind of vibe kind of thing. And I just think it's like, like really awesome. Um, other than that, uh, just some light housekeeping stuff. Uh, you know, we sent out on the morning dispatch a couple days ago, this thing talking about the Naples conference, um, after the election. And all of a sudden we got like a lot of interesting, um, response, new people want to be speakers, a bunch of people want to have booths and that kind of thing. And we're not sure about booths and that kind of thing. But if you, if you want to have a conversation with us, you know, drop us a line. Um, some people asked us about sponsorships. 
that is something that we're we're certainly interested in talking to people about. Um, we're kind of we're kind. Of, I'll just be honest about it. We're 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 kind of stuck up and picky about sponsorships. Um, like there will not be the uh, Jonah Goldberg cigar smoker sponsored by my pillow, if you get my meaning. Um, but if you're a if you're a mainstream you know organization or product and you'd like to um, do some, uh, talk to us about some sponsorship opportunities for this conference. Um, you know, again, drop us a line. My email is Jonah at the dispatch.com. Steve is Steve at the dispatch.com. Um, happy to talk to you. Uh, what else? Can't tell you how happy we are about Allah pundit, uh, joining our ranks. Um, and how happy you are about some other, uh, developments that we'll be announcing in, in, in due course. Um, and so next week we're doing an all dispatch kind of retreat thing. It's very exciting. Um, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with the morning dispatch. Uh, podcast schedules might be light or weird. Um, and I may miss a G file or two. I just wanted to let you know in advance, um, because we're all sort of going to ground. Um, but we won't go completely dark or anything like that. Um, and, uh, again, I got to tell you, you know, thank you guys so much for your support. Things are really starting to fire on all cylinders for us. You know, the website has great content every single day. Subscriptions, both for the free and the paid stuff are really trending in a great direction by which I mean upwards at a nice rate of ascent. Um, and, uh, you know, I can get a little uh, distracted by the comment section from time to time, even though I don't always comment. Um, I, I do find that there are people who um, vex me, but, you know, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. And um, other than that, uh, really just I want to thank everybody for their support and their consideration. And um, I'll see you next time. <laughs>